Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find this as a podcast or on the website evidencebasederrata.com. So tonight we are going to start off as we normally do every week with some uh, PSAs. I'm sorry, not some PSAs. What am I saying? Uh, We're going to talk about COVID news as we are wont to do. So uh, first off, for the locals, if you are in Hampshire County, we have now reached the high designation from the CDC. Uh, We were in substantial before, which I still argue is higher than high, but apparently not. (laughs) Um, So we are now in high, so it is definitely best to mask up and social distance where possible. Uh, despite, again, the high effectiveness of the vaccine, even against Delta, um, because we know that Delta can cause breakthrough infections. And so the thing about it is that for the most part, when people get breakthrough infections, they aren't very serious, but you are then uh, able to transmit it to people who are not vaccinated. And so this is especially true if you're in the 20 to 29 year age range, which kind of unsurprisingly uh, has the highest rate of transmission in the state at the moment. Uh, And so as I was perusing the uh, Department of Health website for uh, the state of Massachusetts, uh, I noticed something uh, quite impressive uh, and not in a good way. Uh, So I would recommend, if you can, staying clear of Barnstable and Duke's counties. That would be the Cape and the Islands. Uh, And so apparently they have vaccination rates of 6.1 and 4.1% respectively. And that is not a typo. Both counties are reported to as having less than 10% of their population listed as fully vaccinated. Now, there could be several reasons for this. It may be that because a lot of people are transient, they're not counted um, among these numbers. It may be because they went elsewhere, like Boston, to get their vaccines. Um, But as we know, there have already been some pretty severe uh, breakthrough outbreaks there. Uh, Again, one of the uh, big outbreaks in Provincetown was actually why In part, the CDC started re-recommending people put their masks on and uh, social distance. And so, yeah, I would definitely um, be more cautious if you were planning on visiting uh, the Cape or the islands. Now, Hampshire is at a middling 63.7%. And the highest is actually my home county, uh, which is Middlesex which came in at a surprising 75.2%. But then I thought about it a little bit more, and I think that's where a lot of the people who work in biotech around Boston actually live. Um, and there's some some other um, big employers up there. Uh, sadly, there's a Raytheon plant 
um, which I suspect probably is requiring vaccinations um, and some other employers that I bet are driving that number up. And of course, it's, it is kind of interesting that Hampshire is only at 63.7% given the fact that there are a lot of colleges in the Valley that have uh, really tried to push everyone to get vaccinated. Um, but, you know, so when you hear about, uh, you know, mass being just above the average, apparently uh, Barnstable and Dukes counties are dragging us down a bit. Um, and again, you know, it could be for a variety of reasons. I don't want to, you know, point the finger at them and say that they're, uh, you know, the reason why we can't have nice things. But <laughs> yeah, um, they are definitely on the extremely low end of the range. Okay, let's move on to some research. The CDC is reporting that with the rise of the Delta variant, emergency room visits and hospital admissions have increased for persons aged 0 to 17. So, turns out, more kids are being uh, admitted to the hospital. And so they found, for, they further found, unsurprisingly, that doing, during the two-week period of August 14th to 27th, COVID-19-related uh, ED visits or um, emergency department and hospital admissions in the states with lowest vaccin vaccination rates were 3.4 and 3.7 percent or seven times higher than that of states with the highest vaccination rates. Now, while COVID-19 ED visits and admissions peaked in January of 2021, incidents have begun to rise again from a low in June of less than 3% for all age groups, 0 to 4, 5 to 11, and 12 to 17. In August, incidences were 16.2, 28.5, and 32.7 per 100,000 people, which, as you can see, is a stark uptick. Now, this includes rises in states with high vaccination rates as well as those who are lagging, though the rates in those states were, were again higher than in high vac states. The highest levels were found in the southeast portion of the country and the lowest here in the northeast. Um, so, yeah. The researchers note Pediatric ED visits and hospital admissions were higher in August 2021 in states with the lowest vaccination coverage among persons aged less than or equal to 12 years. Although the SARS-CoV-2 Delta variant is highly transmiss transmissible, only a modest decrease in vaccine effectiveness against infection with the Delta variant has been reported. Therefore, transmission might be a major factor driving increases in ED visits and hospital admission. However, beyond community vaccination coverage, other factors driving regional variation might include differences in implementation of other prevention measures, including masks, physical distancing, and kindergarten through grade 12 school opening policies. So, you know, that is definitely a thing if you are in a region where children are being told that they need to wear a mask when they go to school. 
you're likely to have a lower rate of transmission than in uh, states where um, children are not being uh, told to, and in some cases not being allowed to wear masks. Um, and so, yeah, this just, it just continues to frustrate me and I'm sure you as well, uh, how much this has become just a ridiculous, utterly ridiculous political football, wherein you can tell exactly where the highest rates of uh, unvaccinated people are because they are all in red states, quote unquote. And so, yeah, it's just very frustrating. And um, I think that we need to do something about it. Um, and I'll talk a little bit more about the recent uh announcements by the Biden administration. But first, let's go back to this uh, subject for a few minutes. So interestingly, the study found that the percentage of children admitted to an ICU during the pre-Delta and Delta predominant period was actually relatively the same, 26.5% and 23.2% respectively. Now, the former may be larger given the longer period of time measured, which was March 1st, 2020 through June 19th, 2021, so over a year. Now, the same study found that a median length of stay was three days pre-Delta and two days during the uh, Delta predominant period among hospitalized patients 0 to 17. Now, these studies, as we keep talking about, have limitations. And so uh, for this one, they are limited, they are including but not limited to uh, the quality of the data sets used to quantify COVID-19 cases, because basically they're using the reports that um, people have put into their record. And so sometimes they might not notice certain symptoms. Sometimes they might think that it's a case of something else. Um, cause you know, children get a lot of, uh, you know, um, they get a lot of, uh, sicknesses when they're young. And so it could also be, um, limits in the data sets that actually talk about ED visits and hospital admissions rates. And so the fact that overall patients in the zero to 17 age range are less often tested for SARS-CoV-2, COVID um, infections and thus rates of infection are actually most likely underreported. And so ED visits and hospital admissions were not characterized by reason for visit or admission and might include cases of MIS-C, which is multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children, which has been linked to COVID-19, but it's not yet proven uh, to be a cause um, of that COVID-19 is not uh, been proven yet to be the cause of this syndrome, um, but it's it's strongly implied. And uh, you could also have had asymptomatic COVID-19 uh, children. And so obviously the CDC recommends more detailed tracking of symptoms and measures of severity, vaccination status, 
underlying medical conditions and other factors to better assess the landscape of emerging Delta variants effects on the child population. Because of course, this is a big thing. We want to make sure that we are not going to be endangering children. Um, one should hope that we can all agree, uh, though I fear that we can't even agree on that these days because we have very different ideas about how to protect children. And for some people, they think that not uh, getting them vaccinated, not having them uh, wear masks and socially distance is actually helping them, even though all of the science suggests otherwise. Um yeah. And unfortunately, we were primed for this. And uh, it's just really sad to know that the just terrible, terrible um, injustice that was the uh, Andrew Wakefield uh, scandal. And by uh, injustice, I mean that he has not been severely punished, uh, has not had, uh, you know, millions of dollars of lawsuits, uh, and potentially had to spend large amounts of time in jail. Um, I think that he has caused so much irreparable harm to the fabric of our, uh, society's ability to trust in doctors and in vaccines. And it's just so, so upsetting to know that in in some part, he is still to blame for this. Um, and, you know, it's just very frustrating um, to think that, you know, he laid the groundwork for people to distrust vaccines. Um, and of course, this is all despite the fact that he was hoping to market a vaccine, so anyways, in a related study, <laughs> researchers found that in adolescents in the 12 to 17 age group for which the vaccine is now available, they had hospitalization rates were approximately 10 times higher in unvaccinated than fully vaccinated adolescents, suggesting again that the vaccine is highly effective at preventing infection, even of the Delta variant. So let's just talk about uh, what the White House said for a few minutes. Now, I do think they are trying to step in the right direction with control measures, but I continue to be vexed by their insistence on suggesting that boosters should be available soon, especially when the World Health Organization is screaming at the top of its lungs to stop such nonsense and to focus on getting first and second doses to people in countries where even the elderly and frontline workers have yet to receive a single dose. And honestly, from a purely selfish stance, if you want to be selfish and say, you know, other people will have to wait, the longer COVID-19 is available to move around in unvaccinated populations, the better the chance of developing mutations that could make it deadlier, more transmissible, and importantly, able to circumvent current vaccinations. And so right now there is a uh, variant of interest called Mu, 
So right now we're mostly dealing with Delta. Um, And so moving down the Greek alphabet, uh, Mu is is scary. I'm not going to lie. Mu uh, is highly resistant to um, antibiotics from antibodies from people who have been infected with other strains of COVID and also people who have antibodies from vaccines. And so it is circulating in uh, South America right now, primarily. Um, But um, yeah, and this is what happens when people are not uh, vaccinated for the easier uh, to combat uh, strains of a virus. It continues to be able to percolate and to uh, change its um, style, change its structure, and it becomes less and less like it was originally. And the vaccines are based on versions that were originally circulating. And so, yeah, it's a bad thing. Um, it's not a doomsday scenario yet. Uh, you know, it's it's not the dominant strain uh, anywhere, I don't think, even in the places where it's it's dominant in the sense of there's large populations of people with it. Um, I think Delta is still outpacing it even in those places. But um, yeah, uh, it's it's a little scary. Uh, and we should be a little worried, um, at the moment. Uh, I think that we are in the, uh, medium stage of worry and, uh, we still have substantial and high to go. So (laughs) let's stick with medium for now, but getting back to, you know, the problem, uh, director general, Dr. I am going to, uh, mispronounce this name terribly, and I apologize. Tedros Adahaman Ghebreyesus um, noted in a briefing this week that of the 5.5 billion vaccine doses administered worldwide, 80% have been distributed in high and upper middle class countries. 90% of those countries have reached and many have gone well beyond the first benchmark of 10% of the population of a country being vaccinated. While none of the countries in the lower income brackets have reached this basic benchmark. And while rich countries have been saying they'll share, less than 15% of the 1 billion doses that were promised have materialized. Because manufacturers have prioritized or been legally obliged to fulfill bilateral deals with rich countries willing to pay top dollar, low-income countries have been deprived of the tools to protect their people, Dr. Tedros said. He went on to say that there has been a lot of talk about vaccine equity, but too little action. We don't want any more promises. We just want vaccines. And so, yeah. That's a huge problem. And so I continue to caution that boosters have not been shown clinically uh, to be necessary yet, uh, especially with just Delta variant. Um, And also so many people out there haven't even gotten one shot. And 
not only is that a human rights issue for those people who deserve to have the same chance of getting a vaccine as people in wealthy countries, but it also does the people in wealthy countries no favor because the uh, variants are just allowed to continue to rage in places where there is no vaccine. So um, there is literally no good reason not to be uh, taking those vaccines that are supposed to be for boosters and shipping them out to countries that need them desperately. Um, so yeah, and of course, meanwhile, back at back in America, uh, effect how effective those White House the White House is at enforcement really remains to be seen, uh, because of course there will be lawsuits uh, by people convinced that their freedom to catch a potentially deadly disease is potentially more important than the lives of their neighbors. Potentially. Caveat. Um, so yeah, that that's obviously a bit of hyperbole, but sometimes it feels very, very real. Um, and so, yeah, one thing I read about um, that made me sad very much, um, but also is a thing that I think might change some minds, sadly, again, is an idea floating around uh, insurance and business circles, which suggests that they will stop waiving fees for COVID-19 related illness expenditures for people who have gotten the vaccine but refused. Now, of course, I look at this and I don't see any way of equitably enforcing that. And I'm obviously, uh, if you are a longtime listener, uh, I am generally against capitalistic solutions to any problem at all, no matter how small or how big. I think capitalism is the problem, not the solution. Um, but when you read about states like Idaho, Idaho has actually, uh, it has invoked a emergency care um, bill, which basically means that they are starting to ration care. Um, and so basically people who have minor, um, you know, things that they would normally go to an emergency room for, those people are just going to be pushed away. They're going to be told, go home you don't get any care, um, potentially. Uh, people who need to have um, elective surgeries, you know, those are probably going to be cut um, because those, uh, you know, those um, operating rooms are probably going to end up being used for patients who have COVID-19. And um, the worst of that is that eventually, if you continue to have a breakdown of, um, you know, the amount of supplies available, of beds available, if you continue to have more and more people having COVID and those people end up on, you know, needing ventilators, you can actually get to, and uh, this happened some in the very early days of the original outbreak where people, uh, doctors have to make decisions as to which patients are more likely to survive and thus more likely um, to be considered to have those, um, you know, life-saving measures given to them. And so that is, that is scary. And it's especially scary when we know what works. We have a vaccine that is incredible 
incredibly, incredibly good at preventing people from getting COVID-19. And even if they get it from having to go to the hospital, from having severe complications, from having any symptoms whatsoever, most, you know, we're probably un- underreporting the amount of people who have del- Delta virus because a lot of people are probably getting it, but are asymptomatic. And so, you know, it's just, it's so frustrating. Um, because I just, I just don't know what to do. Um, obviously I'm just one person, so I can't do a whole heck of a lot except to sort of, uh, continue to yell into the, uh, microphone about how you should get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. I want you to get vaccinated. I don't care about your political, uh, positions. I don't care if you are a bad person, I still want you to get vaccinated um, because it helps your neighbors too. And so I want everyone to be vaccinated. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's frustrating, but you know what time it is? It's time for a break. Let's take a break. Let's do some chomos, uh, show promos. I am having trouble with that tonight and some PSAs, and then we'll come back and we will stop talking about COVID-19 again. All right, so hang on for just a minute. My breast and well, I want my bottle both, and I want my milk and I want it now. And I want you to listen to the kids' I show. I want my bath and I want it now. So we'll see you next Saturday. I want my... Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. Hey everyone, DJ Man of Nowhere here. Tune in to our show Arts Electronica, dedicated to downtempo, ambient, electronic and house music, but also techno and trance, with a hint of progressive and deep house, dubstep and experimental. We love all the music wizards here that bring to life their poetry throughout their sound spaces, soundscapes and sound sculptures. Arts Electronica goes live on Saturdays at midnight to 2am Sunday morning. Check us out. Sure, humans can be a little weird at times. But take it from me, I'm a dog. And a person is about the best thing that can happen to a shelter pet. So if you want to learn how you can be that person, get down to your local pet shelter or visit the shelterpetproject.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. I Heart J-Rock with DJ Sakura is your weekly two-hour show devoted to rock music from Japan. Join me on Saturday nights, 10 p.m. to midnight. I'll be playing the very best and the newest J-Rock, J-Pop, J-Metal, VK, you name it, I'll play it as long as it's from Japan. Thank you. Está oyendo a Valley Free Radio. W-X-O-J-L-P, Northampton. Radio should be fun, so on Sundays, we get weird. Mad Hatter's Mix, Challenge Normal from 1 to 3. Connect the dots with me from Tori Amos to Weird Al to Muse to the Proto-Men to Monty Python and back to Tori Amos. 
sketches, stand-up, some kickin' tunes, Mad Hatter's Mix, Sundays at 1 on 103.3 WXOJ, Valley Free Radio. Okay, we are back. And so, as promised, we are going to uh, be done with COVID-19 for tonight. And so let's move on now and talk about, uh, we talked about a bunch of fan favorites last week, but, uh, we have one more to go. So, uh, let's talk about our friends, the cephalopods, especially the clever cuttlefish. Sorry, I couldn't resist. <laughs> New research suggests that cuttlefish's episodic memory remembering the time and place of specific events does not decrease with age, unlike humans. Cuttlefish can remember what they ate, where, and when, and uses to to guide their feeding decisions in the future, said co-author Alexandra Schnell of the University of Cambridge, who conducted the experiments at the Marine Biological Laboratory in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. What's surprising is that they don't lose this ability with age, despite showing other signs of aging like loss of muscle function and appetite. And so the same team had already shown that cuttlefish can pass the so-called marshmallow test, which requires an understanding of delayed gratification. They even did better on a learning test after having waited for their preferred treat. And I did talk about this study at the time. Um, and so the new test looks not at semantic memory, uh, which is basically the ability to uh, recall facts, uh, just, you know, sort of the encyclopedic knowledge. Uh, and so those facts tend to are separate from the context of time and location. So knowing what is the ingredients in bread versus knowing the last time you ate fresh homemade bread. That is semantic um, learning versus uh, episodic learning or memory, sorry. And um, so for humans, this tends to stay the same even as we age. We can still recall basic facts that we know. It's the being able to remember what you had for dinner last Friday, those memories are what they wanted to look at and what tend to fade in humans. And so they developed, we developed that memory at around four, but as mentioned, it weakens as we get older. And so researchers suspect that this is because these memories are stored in the hippocampus, which deteriorates as we age. I feel like mine is deteriorating a little bit tonight. Uh, I apologize. <laughs> but we also once thought that this kind of memory was uniquely human. Again, another thing that we thought only humans can possibly do this, um, because it obviously involves a conscious experience of recollection. You have to be able to imagine the thing that happened at the time and or place. And so part of that bias is that it's easy to ask a human if they remember what they had for dinner last Friday, but it's a lot harder to ask that of an ape or a cuttlefish. But of course, in the last few decades, several animals have been found to have episodic-like memory. They use this term to, quote, 
explicitly acknowledge that we are not assuming human attributes of language and the consciousness involved in awareness of the project of the projection of self in time, as they wrote in a footnote. And so part of that is um, an acknowledgement that we can't know what their um, subjective experiences are because they're not human. And part of it is an acknowledgement not to try and push too much of our ideas of what is human and what happens in a human's brain on other organisms. And so a 1998 study found that jaybirds can remember when and where they stored foraged food and what kind of food was stored. In the intervening years, we have found similar abilities in magpies, great apes, rats, and zebrafish. And of course, also in cuttlefish. Now, cuttlefish don't have a hippocampus, but they do have distinctive brain structures and organization. They have a vertical lobe that researchers found to have connectivity and function much like that of the human hippocampus. It's the cuttlefish's center for learning and memory. Now, past studies have documented the ability of cuttlefish to remember details of what, where, and when from past forages, the specific kind of memories that researchers associate with episodic-like memory. Cuttlefish make for good test subjects for this research because they have a relatively short lifespan of around two years. I always say that we should be glad that cephalopods have relative, relatively short lives, or I'm pretty sure they would have taken over the earth by now. Um, though the ants might have something to say about that, because I'm pretty sure the ants are quite happy being in control of the earth. <laughs> um, for sheer biomass, we're, we're nothing compared to the ants. But anyways... For the current experiment, Schnell et al. used 24 common cuttlefish. Half were young, between 10 and 12 months old, and half were old, between 22 and 24 months old. The older cuttlefish represented uh, a kind of human equivalent of a 90-year-old. And of course, those are always a little bit hard to discern, but obviously from cognitive function, they're at the end of their lives. Um, and so, you know, an 80 to 90 year old. Now, all of them were born and raised in individual tanks at Woods Hole. The team first trained the cuttlefish to respond to visual cues. The researchers would wave black and white flags to mark specific locations in the individual's tanks. As in previous research, they used two types of food rewards. The cuttlefish were taught that at a particular place in the tank, they could be given prawn meat after delays of one hour or three hours for their preferred meal of grass shrimp. The two feeding locations were unique for each day in order to avoid confusion with the cuttlefish simply learning a pattern rather than being able to remember specific things. They found that all of the cuttlefish, regardless of age, were able to remember which type of prey appeared first at each feeding site and to then go to the site of their preferred food at each subsequent feeding. The researchers suspect that the difference in cuttlefish may be that, like, unlike in humans, that vertical lobe in cuttlefish, it doesn't deteriorate until the very last few days of the animal's life. 
The researchers also believe that this might have something to do with reproduction from an evolutionary standpoint, because cuttlefish mate relatively late in light. Life. The old cuttlefish were just as good as the younger ones in the memory task. In fact, many of the older ones did better in the test phase, said Schnell. We think this ability might help cuttlefish in the wild to remember who they mated with, so they don't go back to the same partner. Genetic diversity is important. Sometimes. We'll talk about that in a second. <laughs> and so this doesn't mean that they continue to be fully sharp-minded until their last few days. Other studies have shown declines in memory retention in older cuttlefish, potentially a sign of age-related loss of long-term memory, and other parts of the brain structure do begin to deteriorate with age. The researchers hope to study the neuroanatomy of the animals more and to discover when episodic-like memories emerge. Is it shortly after hatching, or is it at some later date? Overall, these findings highlight the common cuttlefish as an interesting model for investigating resistance to age-related decline in the episodic-like memory system, the authors concluded. Okay, so we're going to move on now, and we're going to talk about another adorable animal. This time we are going to talk about an adorable bird. Um, and so, yeah... And so this bird seems to be surviving despite an amazing amount of things that have been thrown at it. And so hopefully you've seen footage, footage of the ridiculously cute Kakapo, a nocturnal ground-dwelling parrot from New Zealand. Uh, not only are they flightless, they climb trees rather than flying up to them. Uh, they are moss green and they are also the heaviest birds alive, um, as far as proportional and they are notoriously bad at reproduction. We're talking, they are on the level of the giant panda when it comes to being bad at mating. They only breed around every four years when the coniferous pines in their habitat produce a bumper crop of rimu fruit, which gives them vitamin D, which is essential for laying eggs and for feeding their hatchlings. In 2019, they actually had a bumper crop of both rimu fruit and kakapo eggs, with 73 or more being produced. But they are actually a surprising success story, at least in some respects so far. The whole story of their, um, you know, ability to survive has not yet been written. Um, obviously, they are facing, they're still facing a lot of threats, but they've really come back from um, some really tough times. And so they basically barely survived into the modern day after assaults from rats and dogs brought by Polynesian settlers and then deforestation and feral cats brought by European settlers originally. Now, the birds can actually live for 90 years or so because they're parrots and a lot of parrots live for very long periods of time. So many have probably witnessed relatives and mates lost. Um, so yeah, uh, again, trying to envision the idea of um, 
animal memory and animal um, emotion is very tough and very uh, fraught. So I don't want to anthropomorphize too much, but um, you know, it would be really interesting to know what a bird that lives for 90 years actually retains as long-term memory. But uh, so by the mid nineties, there were only around 50 of the birds alive. They'd already been moved to predator-free islands in the 1980s, but of course then humans are terrible, and so stoats and weasels were introduced to the islands to cull rabbit populations, and they of course also uh, started taking out uh, the birds' eggs. And so, yeah. And of course, to add to all of this and to get to the sort of uh, meat of the study, they'd already had a small habitat range and so had been functionally inbreeding for around 10,000 years. And yet, when a team of researchers examined the genomes of 49 of the birds, the total population has rebounded to around 200 at this point. They found that they had avoided the kind of genetic degradation often found in species who have undergone a serious genetic bottleneck. The main findings of this study is that even though Kakapo are one of the most inbred and endangered bird species in the world, it has much fewer harmful mutations than expected, said Nicholas Dusick, lead author of the paper and a researcher at the Center for Paleogenetics in Stockholm University, in an email to Gizmodo. They... Their hypothesis is that because the Kakapo have been inbreeding for 10,000 years, they've slowly been exposed to harmful genetic mutations that only affect a small portion of the population, and so that effectively allows them to purge the bad genetics through the death of small populations rather than the whole. It seems that one factor favoring purging is the speed of the decline and the rate of increase in inbreeding, Dusick explained. If inbreeding increases very rapidly, a large number of harmful mutations will be exposed to natural selection in a very short time span. Conversely, if inbreeding increases gradually, harmful mutations are exposed little by little over a large number of generations and not in all individuals at the same time. But of course, they did find that those mutations do exist. They just don't exist in really large numbers in order to actually cause a lot of, um, you know, failure to be able to breed and to live. And so, for instance, the one male survivor from the mainland, Richard Henry, shows more harmful mutations than the Stewart Island birds, which suggests that breeding with him could introduce those harmful mutations to future generations. But he was actually instrumental in the early conservation work to bring the birds back because of his distinctiveness from those Stewart Island population. And so he's actually named after a human who devoted his life at the turn of the 20th century to saving the species. And so I think that's really lovely. And that mantle has now been passed to a handful of New Zealand conservationists, 
many co-authors on the new paper. And so this new research will help give them another lifeline, which might just help them to pull themselves from the critically endangered list. Dusik notes, for instance, that it will help to refine the breeding program as they now have a better idea of the genetic genetic makeup of various birds and can see how those in the current population relate. So yes, let us hope that uh, this will be a boon to the kakapos because they're so adorable. Um, there is an infamous video of a kakapo, um, which I will not tell you too much more about. Um, I'll just say that if you want to watch a funny video of a kakapo, uh, if you Google, you know, kakapo and look for the video, look at videos, you'll, you'll readily find it. Um, it involves a kakapo and I think a wildlife photographer and, um, yeah, it's quite a thing to behold. Um, <laughs> and, uh, there's also, um, uh, Benedict Cumberbatch did, you know, some wildlife, um, documentary narration. And so there's also a video of Benedict Cumberbatch talking about uh, kakapos, which is also kind of delightful. And so, yeah, I could have sworn there was a bit about kakapos in uh, David Attenborough's Life of Birds, but I couldn't find it offhand. Um, that is such a lovely... Um, that's one of my sort of happy place, uh, <laughs> videos, um, or series that I just, you know, David Attenborough is just a national, an international treasure, I should say, cause he's not our treasure, but <laughs> anyways, we were talking about odd birds. And so let's talk about a, another odd bird that comes from the antipodes. So apparently there was an Australian musk duck called Ripper, who learned to imitate the phrase, you bloody fool, as well as the sound of a door slamming. He was around four at the time the first recordings were made 30 years ago by Peter Fuligar, a now retired ornithologist. And so there's actually a uh, sound clip. So I'm going to play the sound clip of him uh, sort of saying, you bloody fool. It's interesting because you get sort of different parts of the words in different uh, bits of the repetition. But let's listen to it for a second. So yeah, <laughs> that is him saying, you bloody fool. And, uh, this is his uh, car door slamming imitation. So let's listen to this for just a second. So yeah, that 
all came from a duck, which, you know, are not the animals or the uh, birds you think of when you think of mimicry. And so Fuligar teamed up with Carol Tenkate, an ethologist or researcher of animal behavior at the Institute of Biology in Leiden in the Netherlands to investigate how these birds were able to mimic sound so clearly. So besides Ripper, the team also looked at another duck that was able to imitate the calls of another species. Now, the musk duck is not as cute as the kakapo. I'm just going to say it. But of course, that's a tall order because kakapo are just ridiculous. So that adds the, uh, that ups the adorableness like 10 to 20%. The males have a sort of jowl that inflates during mating displays um, and it's black and they're kind of mostly black. Um, and they have a musky odor produced by a scent gland uh, on their rumps, which is of course where they get their name from. And so this is actually the first time a goose or duck has been recorded mimicking human speech. We do not know how exactly the sounds are being produced, or rather the vocalization apparatus of this species are very different from other ducks, Tenkate noted. And while certain anatomical structures are required to produce the sounds, more important for the ability to imitate is the brain. There have to be areas that are capable of storing the sound and using it to model the bird's own sounds, he added. And so Fulliger made the recordings on a Sony Walkman cassette in July of 1987 on a nature reserve southwest of Canberra, where Ripper lived. He believes both vocalizations were anger displays, though he didn't think the bird understood their meaning. The other duck that they um, had come across imitated the sound of Pacific black ducks. Less impressive, but still remarkable. Tenke and Fuligar actually reached out to several rearers of musk ducks who confirmed that their ducks were quite prolific mimickers. They reported imitations of coughs and snorts of a pony, the high-pitched clink of a turnstile, and other non-duck sounds. The remarkable thing is that they do this spontaneously, Tenkate said. It is similar to songbirds, which store the songs of conspecifics at a young age and then start to produce them when adult and becoming sexually mature. So, uh, as an aside to this story, uh, someone mentioned in passing a story from last year that is too good not to share, and it's a great way to... Uh, wrap up tonight. So apparently, uh, the Lincolnshire Wildlife Park in England has a large colony of African gray parrots. Um, and so, of course, these are known to be highly intelligent and chatty. Uh, there was the famous African gray parrot, Alex, who did all sorts of amazing things that people still argue about today um, as to whether or not he was actually able to have conversations, uh, do simple mathematics and things like that. People, you know, still have opinions about that. Um, but apparently they had to separate five of the parrots because they were encouraging each other to swear. <laughs> Billy, Eric, 
Tyson, Jade, and Elsie were separated, apparently to save the ears of children. We are quite used to parrots swearing, but we've never had five at the same time, said the zoo's chief executive Steve Nichols at the time. Most parrots clam up outside, but for some reason, these five relish it. And so, yeah, um, I love that story a little bit too much. I think it's adorable and ridiculous to have a bunch of parrots uh, <laughs> in an enclosure, basically egging each other on to swear. Um, I find that incredibly delightful. Um, and yeah, parrots are very amazing and cool. Um, I don't think I'd want to own one, um, especially since they live so long. I would hate to um, have an animal that I, you know, you kind of have to have an animal, you have to kind of have a parrot given to you as a baby so that the two of you can grow up together. Um, if you're really going to have a parrot like an African gray, um, or, uh, a kakapo, um, though not many people keep kakapos as pets, uh, for very obvious reasons. Um, and so, yeah, I, um, I do think that they are lovely and amazing though. And I haven't, I haven't been down there, um, to look for them, but apparently, um, you know, there's, there's various places where birds are kind of, uh, have been transplanted into environments where they haven't been before. So apparently, uh, they're probably still there. There's actually a um, colony of parrots that live in Connecticut somewhere, uh, somewhere on the Connecticut River. And so, um, and there's some in New York and there's a whole bunch of uh, parrots that are local, uh, so to speak, at this point. Um, but those I think are just, you know, sort of budgies or um, cockatoos or something, not even cockatoos, just budgies or uh, one of the smaller versions. All right. I think that's enough for tonight. <laughs> um, I hope you have a lovely week. And um, yes, you have been listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.